As we engage in this spirited singing, it's always so encouraging and uplifting. It is that which reminds us of so many Bible verses, including the Old Testament ones that so often speak about singing and the attitude of the heart and the characteristics that are expressed in those wonderful opportunities. It is the case, though, that we come to this part of our service tonight in which we will consider another lesson. This is the fourth Sunday night in the, in the month of September, and so following our usual schedule, we will come tonight to a consideration of some questions and answers. As you can tell, one per month will bring this to the ninth installment of this, in fact, for this calendar year. Tonight's questions are those which, again, you have uh, so kindly shared. And may I again remind you, if you wish to make use of that little box out there in the foyer, please put your questions there or direct them to me personally. Certainly be happy to field them and make use of them in some future considerations as well. In this opening slide, we just introduce ourselves again to the thought that it's our goal through the course of these questions and answers never to merely allow it to be our own answers or pr our preferences but that it's our desire for the Word of God, perhaps in statements like this. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It is with that said, we come to the first question then of the night, which, as usual, I like to exactly state it the way the person wrote it, and so we shall do that in the following question that's been asked of us. What was the significance of anointing someone's head with oil, as often mentioned in the Old and in the New Testament? And furthermore, what type of oil was used? And so that question, as you can tell, will lead us through some of the thoughts presented on that slide that's now before you. As you and I reflect upon the anointing with oil, there are many things that might well be said and some of them will begin in the ways that you note there. The person who wrote the particular question made reference to both the Old and New Testament, so I thought it wise to at least ask what some things we might know about the Old Testament anointing. If you would wish to revisit Exodus 29, we certainly will not read all of that chapter in terms of what it presents, but at least some of it will at least relate rather strongly to the factor of this anointing. So in Exodus, the 29th chapter, note particularly verse number 7, Then shalt thou take the anointing oil, and pour it upon his head, and anoint him. And clearly, we find this in a context where someone is being anointed for a particular case, for a particular work, and in light of the commands that God had given through Moses to the people. Remember, this was the commandments God gave on Mount Sinai, to Moses to be shared with the people. Clearly, it included something as significant as anointing. One of the first things we might then notice, the anointing was not merely someone's idea. It was not something that might well be the consensus of a group of people, including even the priests. It was something God commanded. In that same chapter, notice furthermore in verse 21, just a little bit forward, and thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon the garments of his sons with him and he shall be hallowed and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So we have learned a little bit more this time. We see the person under description. It was Aaron 
and his sons, and in fact, in addition to that, even the garments of them. Might you and I take note then that the anointing was there said to satisfy this purpose. It was to consecrate them. That word consecrate means to set apart. It means to designate for a particular holy office or holy work. And so we now find that Aaron the high priest and his sons who were the priests were in fact to be honored and to be hallowed and to be anointed for that purpose. But that's not all. You'll notice next on that slide. Notice the person also asked the question, do we know anything about what constituted this anointing oil? That's a wonderful question. Could I invite you to notice, as I pointed out, the next chapter tells us what the ingredients were that were to be used to construct this anointing oil. In fact, could I direct you to verse 23? Exodus 30, verse 23. It says, I'll start reading in verse 22, Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses. Could I again remind all of us, God gave these ingredients. It's not as if this was Moses' idea or the idea of a particularly gifted person in connection to this. God gave it. Verse 23, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, five hundred shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even two hundred and fifty shekels, and of sweet calamus, two hundred and fifty shekels, and of cassia, five hundred shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil and hen. And thou shalt make it and I'm sorry, and thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, and it shall be in holy anointing oil. Now there we have the conclusion of the list of the ingredients. Some of those things you and I know rather well, like cinnamon. Others of them are a bit unfamiliar to us, like cassia. If you look at that up, you discover it is a particular fragrance that they understood and knew quite well and seems to be rather common in that part of the world. Myrrh we read about later in the Bible as well. Some of the other parts of it, may I just simply say, God even told them how much to use. So the mixture that was related to the anointing of the priests was something that was, again, highly appreciated in all of its particulars in relation to the God of heaven. That significance leads me to note what's next. At the very outset, you and I can easily observe then that this holy anointing was something that was a rather powerful and high estate of respect. Isn't it interesting, though, what comes next? Did you notice a moment ago, even the garments of the priest were to be anointed? I suppose you and I most often think about individuals being anointed. And that is something that happened often. But that wasn't all that was anointed. In fact, on that slide, I invited you to notice in Exodus 29, verse number 2, again, two chapters earlier, look at what was therein stated. And unleavened bread and cakes unleavened, tempered with oil, and wafers unleavened, anointed with oil. Of wheat and flour shalt thou make them. So they were even supposed to anoint these wafers. You and I would recognize them as an element then connected to other parts of the sacrifices. But here, even the anointing was to go with, as it's mentioned there, unleavened wafers. Another one I would ask you to notice Exodus 40, verse number 9. Closing chapter of the book of Exodus. 
At that time, we have the following anointing highlighted. And thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein, and shalt hallow it, and all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy. Here you and I might note the tabernacle structure, the furniture that was within it, the pieces on those particular elements of furniture, all of it was anointed. By this point, I think we can fairly say, these essences of anointing were again that which God commanded. That leads us to note it was significant. God says nothing that's trivial. He says nothing that's insignificant. He says nothing that's optional. This was important. You'll note the next thing on the slide. The person had asked the question, what were some of the usages? And some of the significances, note the next one. Perhaps in light of these things, which seemingly were connected to the tabernacle and those that officiated in it. What about that text in 1 Samuel 10 verse 1? You and I can probably easily recollect here, it was the first king of Israel. Saul, who Samuel anointed as he prepared to occupy that office. Here, God again commanded Samuel to anoint Saul for that office. Look at the next one in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Here, God commanded Samuel to anoint David as the second king of Israel. In 1 Kings 1, verse 39, Solomon was anointed as the third king of Israel. I simply make those mentions to say this. There are other Old Testament examples of various kings that were anointed. But here we find the biblical record, the first three, were all anointed by command of God relative to that event. By this point, you might be wondering about the New Testament significances. I reserve that to near the bottom of the slide. We have seen the significances in the Old Testament connected either to consecration or to hallowing that which was under discussion. In the cases of the kings, it was to set them apart for the direct service in leading God's people in the way they should have been led. Sometimes the kings faltered. Sometimes they did not remain as true as one might wish to that particular element of anointing. But it didn't change the fact that God at least set them apart for that purpose. Wouldn't it be wonderful today if we had kings and others in particular elements of authority who recognized at least the sentiment and the precept of what was involved in that anointing. In Luke 7 verse 46, Jesus made mention here of anointing. It is in the context that I've invited you to note. It appears by the question the Lord asked that the anointing that the Lord mentioned there was something that a person would do in light of a guest that would come to that person's house. So if you visited a person's house, we all remember one of the things they might well be expected to do is provide you a washing of the feet. So that again, you could appreciate hospitality, and so that you could at least appreciate an element of cleanerness in connection to perhaps a meal or the other considerations of a, a, a visit. But Jesus here mentioned something else anointing with oil. It would seem then that in the aspect of kindness and in the aspect of hospitality, a person might well offer his or her guest some oil by which they might be anointed. From what I was able to tell, that appears to have been in that case basically a perfumery. That is to say, something that might well be used as a kind of perfume, 
in such a way that maybe the kind of aroma that would otherwise be the case would not have been the case. Folks back then didn't take baths as often as we do. They didn't bathe in the same way that we tend to do here in our country at least. And perhaps one can imagine a perfume might well be used to cover or cloud or present a different kind of aroma that might otherwise have been the case. At the very least, Jesus said that it was a part of what might be expected in common hospitality. I suppose the most well-known example is James chapter 5. As far as references to this anointing with oil, would we at least be in a position to come to that passage and look at verse number 14? James chapter 5, verse number 14. In the closing chapter of that little five-chapter book, it says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I suspect as you and I reflect upon that passage, Again, likely it's the first one we think of when the whole subject of the anointing of oil comes in our day and time. That was a New Testament epistle. Does that apply to us today? Is it such that when one of us happens to be ill or sick, we make a quick call to either Eddie or Dennis or Gary, and we invite them then to bring oil, anoint us appropriately, pray over us, And may I invite you to notice, the next verse says this, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Can our elders do this? Would we expect them to be able to do this? I think the answer is no. For reasons you and I have discussed many times before, In that day when there was a characteristic of miraculous matters capable of being done, you and I realize that here several things were said. May I point out a few of them first? Verse 15 says the prayer of faith will save this person. It's not they might be saved, they will be. And they will be healed. And whatever their malady is, it'll be removed. Now you and I know today we shouldn't expect that to be the case. We ought not expect then that a person will guarantee to get better in light of matters connected to what's described here. But that isn't all. May I ask you this, does it say what kind of oil this is? It does not. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told what the ingredients of that oil were. Doesn't that fairly lead us to say then that the age of the miraculous matters has passed and though those to whom James wrote this knew how to make that oil, They knew how to configure it, to mix it, to prepare it. We do not today. That has been lost with the passage of time. When that first century miraculous issues passed away and the capacity that went with it, this is no longer that which was intended for us. May I suggest another thing about that passage might be this. Did you know those to whom James wrote it? In the opening chapter, as well as what's revisited here, he mentioned the church in verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church. Remember, in that day, those men who occupied that role of the eldership were such that hands had been laid on them. And by virtue of that, they were equipped with the capacity 
and the capability of then working these things that are under description. And may I suggest to you that may well have been a matter that was a strong defense of the faith. Think about how strong that'd be. Here's a person in that church who was sick, and everyone would have known it. And yet, with the inspired message of the book of James, the elders were told, you lay your hands, or at least you anoint with this oil, you pray over this person. And if this person, who had been known to be sick for quite some time, instantly became better, and by the next Lord's Day we're ready to meet with the brethren, that would have strengthened their faith. It would have emboldened them to realize that the Lord was among them and that that which had taken place was by His power and authority. But again, that has passed with the age of the miraculous for you and me. May I say as you and I close that slide, we thus have learned several things about the anointing with oil. First, it had a particular case in the Old Testament connected to consecration and hallowing. And in the New Testament, it was connected to hospitality in one text and healing in this one. As far as the other kinds of anointing, those appeared to be the ones connected to what I figured was in light of the person's question when he or she asked it. If that did not answer your question, please kindly write me another one and maybe give me some more details as to the way that you wished that to have been taken. What about question two tonight? This second question reads like this. Given David's involvement in much warfare, how many years of peace did he enjoy in his lifetime? Isn't that an interesting question? We have been studying on Sunday morning through the book of First and Second Samuel much about the life of David, reflecting many times on the particulars of the choices that he made. The person who wrote this question began it with, again, this clause. Given David's involvement in much warfare, there is no question about that part of it. I've invited you to notice on the slide just a few of the observations connected to what the Bible has revealed to you and me about the nature of the warfare and the life of David. May I point out to you rather quickly in 1 Chronicles 28, 3, even God made note to David that he was a man who had shed much blood. As far as a few examples of that truth, in 1 Samuel 27, verses 8 and following, it is there expressly revealed to us that David waged warfare against the Geshurites, against the Gizrites, and against the Amalekites. And he enjoyed great victory in all three cases. Later on, we read in 2 Samuel 8 that David again had great victory as he engaged in war against the Moabites, the Syrians, and the Edomites. We furthermore notice victory over the Ammonites in chapter 10 of that same book. Maybe finally we might note a very poetic statement in 2 Samuel 22 where David exclaimed that God through him had stamped many of his enemies into powder. He had overcome them. He had greatly overwhelmed them. We don't know the exact number of the people that were killed either directly by David or under his authority as king. But it had to have been in the many, many thousands. The question the person asked, given all that bloodshed and all that warfare, how many actual years of peace did David ever know? That's a difficult question to answer. 
there is no single verse that I could find that would pinpoint what that number might have been, but I would offer this. And I think it would be a vital part of that question. What does one mean by this word peace in that context? If David was doing what God commanded him to do, then even if it involved the bloodshed and the taking of many lives, then it would seem that would be no reason to cause David a lack of peace. It would seem that would be no reason to bring about in his mind a great matter of distress. He was only doing what God said for him to do. Now, we do know there were other instances like the one in 1 Samuel 27. God did not tell him to do that one. That was his own choice, and it was by his own volition. Clearly, that one might have caused David some distress, mentally at least. There appears to be no record that it did. The person's question, how many years of peace did David really know? There are a few verses in the Psalms to which I wanted to turn your attention just so that we could at least hear what David had to say in his own words about this. Let's begin in Psalm 3. Psalm 3, beginning in verse number 1. In that passage, David makes this statement. He first begins by saying, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Here was a scene in David's life when... He appears to have been in great difficulty. There were those who wanted to take his life. There were those, and it may well have included Saul, who were desirous of removing him. But when that perhaps might be noted, remember that had happened earlier in David's life. There was a superscription written for this one. I would point that out. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, if that be the case... Seems no reason to doubt it particularly, but notice here, even Absalom, his own flesh and blood, his son, was desirous of taking his life. But I would say in all that, look at what follows in verse number 5. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. Now, here was a man in the midst of some great turmoil. Don't you know, in some way, his heart was breaking because his own flesh and blood was out to kill him. And yet David said, I laid down and slept, and here's why. The Lord sustained me. Look over the next chapter, Psalm 4, verse 8. I will both lay me down in peace, there's our word, and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. I would point out, to whoever might well have penned the question, we might well take note that although David was troubled about by many, he did affirm that he knew some peace and he laid down and slept on occasion and recognized in that prosperous sleep the blessing of God and the sustenance of God in providing you. Have you found yourself in the midst of some trying times in life? I know we've all had a few sleepless nights for various reasons. But have you ever had perhaps a night in the midst of otherwise turmoil when maybe the careful provision of God was enough to lead to a comfort? Our God is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. He is the God who can see through the characteristic to make triumph, 2 Corinthians 2 14. He is the one that sustains us in all those ways, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. As you close that slide with me, I would mention the 23rd Psalm. 
I know well that we use that psalm on so many occasions as it's connected to a time that seems fitting in connection to death. But I hope we'll all remember that when David wrote that, he wasn't just using it for a time of a funeral. I know we often use it in that context, but it is so much more meaningful than that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This was written by someone hopeful of living, not dying. But he was quick to say, Even if I walk in troublous times in which there may well come death, your rod and staff are still with me. I hope you and I then will use that psalm, not just in times of comfort for the passing of a loved one, but even as a charge and challenge for ongoing faithfulness in life, because He is our shepherd. Now with that said, surely we haven't been able to give a specific number of years, but I think we've offered some thought relative. It might well be more than we might otherwise have thought, simply because of David's connection to the God of heaven. Question number three tonight will take us in a rather different direction. The question reads as follows. Discuss the Bible teaching of pride and arrogance. Is there a difference? Is there ever a time when it is biblical to be proud of someone? I suspect that maybe you and I have often at least reflected upon the latter part of that question to be sure. We understand much about pride, and we should review that briefly But remember, as we proceed through this, we are at least somewhat interested in asking this. Would it ever be appropriate to say to someone, I'm proud of you? I suspect many of us, at least who are parents and grandparents, are wont to often make that statement. When our grandchild or our children make good decisions, they put themselves in good spots, they present wisdom, I suppose we're tempted to say, I'm proud of you, son. I'm very happy you chose what you did. Are we okay to make even a statement like that? Let's see. As you and I begin that journey, first we might well give some thought to the Old Testament. Pride is often mentioned there. It is spoken of in ways that might well begin our discussion like this. The Old Testament is very clear, and so too the new will be in just a minute. But the Old Testament is exceedingly clear. That word translated pride, or that, that occurs in English as pride, is a word, as you can see on the slide, that often refers to arrogance, to haughtiness, to the exaltation of oneself above others and even above God on many occasions. That kind of self-exaltation is wrong. It was always wrong, and it'll always be wrong. Look at just a few passages. In Isaiah 16, 6, and reiterated so strongly in Jeremiah 13, 9, God rather directly in that latter one especially said, I will break the pride of Judah. The people of Judah had become rather arrogant. 
they thought they were better than God's ways. They loved what the Egyptians did. I'm going to worship like them. They loved what the Ammonites did. Their worship is more exciting and their worship is more inviting. I love doing that. This worship of God is too dull. God said in their pride and their exaltation, I'm going to bring them down for that. They think they're better than me and they're better than my way of doing things and I'll not have it. Isn't that a warning for us today? Anytime, anybody, anywhere exalts themselves thinking that they know better than God, that they can worship in a way that's more exciting and fruitful and inviting than God's way, they're in for surprise. They're going to come to realize that it was never that way. Not only that, look at some other examples. About the middle of that slide. God then shouts so loudly about the characteristic of how wrong it is because pride goes before destruction. You're only asked to be brought down when you start elevating yourself like this. Pride goeth before destruction, add an haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16:18. In that same book, Proverbs 18:12. We again note one more time that pride and arrogance are connected to what is so displeasing to God. I might add one more in Isaiah 10, 33. There it was connected to the entirety again of the people who had chosen to exalt themselves and God would use the rod of Assyria to correct them. We're beginning to see even the Assyrian captivity in part was because of their own pride. Let's go even further. It is interesting, however, that that same word in Hebrew that's translated pride is also translated in some other ways. You might find it interesting, I know that I did, that that same word is often translated majesty. It's translated excellency. In fact, the King James translation often uses that latter one, excellency. And you can see an example in Ezekiel 24. You can see another example in Nahum chapter 2, where there it's the excellency. Sometimes the excellency of God's under description, but sometimes it's the excellency of people, either for things they have done or things they can do. That's interesting, especially in light of the last point on that slide. In all those instances, it was that excellency as connected to their association to God. That is to say, they were what they were, and they were able to accomplish what they did because they had chosen wisely in light of the knowledge of God. As you and I close that slide, then, several examples. In Isaiah 15, Psalm 93, as well as Psalm 47, all of these mention it and use exactly that way. I suppose, though, we're all rather intrigued to know exactly where that takes us. And so this second slide, in light of that question, will hopefully bring that to bear before us. It might may begin this way. I believe we might be interested to note that pride, as it is used in the context of excellency, in fact, God encouraged it. May I reiterate, God actually encouraged that kind of behavior in Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. And stated again in Job 40, verse 10. But that to be said leads me now to somewhat close that question with the following thoughts on that slide. What about the New Testament? 
That is to say, what about pride in its connection to the law under which you and I live today? First of all, might we be strong to say that as it relates to arrogance, as it relates to self-exaltation, it's just as wrong in the New Testament as it was in the Old. Look at a few of these examples. In Mark 7, verse 22, and 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, we notice here that pride is what will bring about downfall. It will bring about hurt and harm. And the Lord condemned it in that Mark 7 text. It's evil. You and I must be cautious then and never allow ourselves to start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That's exactly the teaching of Romans 12, verse 3. But to go beyond that, I might be quick to point out that that word pride is sometimes used in ways like this. Have you ever thought about those three avenues of temptation and sin? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You see, pride turns out to be a particular way of thinking that the devil can use and twist and pervert and lead a number of things in your life and mine that really may have consequences we never would have imagined. It will cause us to be separated from our family. Let's face it, nobody likes to be around a person who thinks he or, that he or her are, are arrogant. It's not pleasant. It may lead to separation in our family. It may lead to separation with us and our Christian brothers and sisters. And it'll certainly lead to separation from God. We really have to be mindful about this business of pride that way. It's wrong. However, what about that other usage? The Greek word that's translated pride, again, means arrogance. And you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, we notice something about how strongly God looks against it in James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. May we never, ever in a prideful fit or a prideful consideration, exalt ourselves above God's will, above His loving care, and above what He teaches us. But not only that, one last thing would be this. When pride is used that way, we have no question it's wrong. But what about using it as if we mean excellency? Use it as if we have reference to majesty. The very last statement on that slide is this. There is something to be said about the set of characteristics that come to you and me. Let's read that passage again. I know it was read earlier in our hearing. Brother Joe brought our attention to it as it reflected upon you and me as Christians. And it read like this. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises, by the way, that word means excellencies, of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It would appear from passages such as that one, that there would at least be a matter in which we could at least in rightness say to someone, maybe a child, perhaps again a grandchild, or maybe even just someone else with whom we're close, we might, in at least a consideration, in connection, if they've made these decisions in light of connection to God, we could at least say to them, in a matter of excellency, you have chosen so well. And in that regard, I am proud of you. 
And I hope that you will make many more decisions like that one. I would hope we'd be a bit careful, though, just in a blind way, or at least without thought. Because if decisions are made, it seems, without recourse to the things of God, we might need to be more careful. Otherwise, let's close our lesson like this. We've looked at three questions this evening. As we've done that, may I say that there's always a value connected to questions when we consider them in light of the Word of God. As we've looked at them, we have given thought to that first one, which took us to the anointing with oil. The second one, to peacefulness in the life of David. The third one, as it related to this matter of pride. Tonight, God has been so loving to us. I trust that as you and I reflect upon that love, if we find ourselves separated from Him, might we in haste, might we without delay, seek to allow Him to make things right in our life? If there's someone in this assembly who perhaps has walked away from an earnestness in faith, you once knew about walking with the Lord, but at least at this time you have arrived at a point where that isn't true any longer. You realize that. Maybe not many others do, but maybe the people closest to you in your life are well aware of it. And you know that you need to make some changes. You need a strength that you once had but no longer do. You need an avenue of prayer that you once knew well but you no longer have. You need someone to aid you through this life who is far stronger than you are. Tonight, God would love to become that person again in your life to lead you as you would need to be led. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance and help in that way, we would offer that assistance and help through the agency of the Word of God and we would offer the invitation in, in exactly that light. Brother Don has chosen a hymn of encouragement, and if we could be of some help at this moment, we would issue that same invitation to you to come while together we stand and while we sing.